You're listening to the Bible for Normal People, the only God-ordained podcast on the internet. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. Welcome, welcome everyone to this episode of the podcast. Before we get started, we wanted to mention that our March class is coming up and it's called Why God Died, How Atonement Theories Try to Explain Salvation. Yeah, and it's going to be taught by our friend and nerd in residence, Jennifer Garcia Bashaw. She's fantastic. I feel like people, you know, I'm getting a little bit of a complex because yeah, I think a people, bit, actually. I, exactly. I think people like her more than us, but that's okay. That's okay. That's what we want. As always, the class is pay what you can until the class ends. And then uh, you can download it after that if you sign up later for $25. But if you sign up and you can't make the live class, no worries. You can still do pay what you can. Go ahead and sign up and then we'll send a link afterward that you can access later. Yeah, and you're asking, where do I sign up? Well, go to thebiblefornormalpeople.com forward slash atonement. Simple as that. That's it. And our topic today, to get back to the task at hand, is Biblicizing Esther, and our guest is Aaron Kohler. Yeah, Aaron is a professor of Near Eastern Studies at Yeshiva University, and he's currently a visiting fellow at Cambridge University, and he's written a number of books, one of which is Esther and Ancient Jewish Thought, which is immediately relevant for this episode. Absolutely. So let's jump in and do a deep dive on Esther. There's nothing about fiction that makes it inferior to nonfiction. Fiction is sometimes the best books in the world, which actually can address questions in more profound ways than something that's constrained by facts. So if the Jews are really worried by some pretty deep issues about like, what does it mean to be a Jew in the diaspora at this point? It could be that a really probing fictional work can raise those issues in a, in a much more profound and searching way. Well, it's that time, folks. It's time for us to talk about microdosing. Microdose gummies deliver perfect entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good. Microdosing can help you get into a relaxed, focused zone easier and stay there longer. It has benefits for workout recovery, sleep, anxiety relief, boosting creativity, and even pain relief. You know, Jared, I have a really good friend of mine who saw that I was taking microdose gummies and she said, can I try some? And so I gave her some of the sativa strand and she said it has made such a difference for her at work and just in general, just feeling more alert and more focused. And it's quite amazing. So get 30% off your first order plus free shipping today at microdose.com, promo code normalpeople. That's one word. It's available nationwide. That's microdose.com, promo code normalpeople for 30% off and free shipping. microdose.com, promo code normalpeople. Well, welcome to the podcast, Aaron. It's great to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah. And for the, our listeners, they won't know, but it's it's... 10 p.m. where you are and you're recording in a library. So it feels a little like doubly mysterious. It's late at night. We're in a library talking about Esther. So thanks for jumping in. A bit nerdy too. I mean, what five-year-old dreams of talking about Esther at 10 o'clock at night in the library? <laughs> you know, they want to be an astronaut. No, we're stuck talking about Esther. So anyway. Exactly. All right. What could happen if I got into the library after closing hours? Like, yeah, right. This is what happens. <laughs> there's a movie about that somewhere, I think. <laughs> this is a cautionary tale. Um, so let's start with what we really want to dig into the story of Esther, but maybe it's helpful for folks who aren't familiar with the story to get a little overview of, you know, the setting, the plot, the main characters. What what happens here? Sure. Okay. So the story is set in the Persian capital of Susa, and there are four main characters. Two of them are 
the Jewish characters who sort of compete for the title of main character of the story. That's Esther, who winds up being the queen, and her uncle Mordecai, who we don't know much about biographically in the story. Like he doesn't get a lot of backstory, but has a pretty big role to play in the narrative itself. And then there's the king, who in the Hebrew text is called Ahashverosh or Ahasueros. His English name, since this refers to a real person, is Xerxes. And that's, uh, yeah, so those names actually match up if you go back to his original name. And then there's a Persian official named Haman. And so those are the four big characters. Um, and there's essentially two plot lines in the story that uh, sort of start together and then diverge and then come back together. And that's that Esther is the queen. She's secretly Jewish. No one uh, knows that she's Jewish. And then uh, through an accident, Haman winds up really hating Mordecai the Jew for trivial reasons, like nothing interesting. But because of that, he decides that he's actually going to massacre all of the Jews rather than just take his anger out on Mordecai himself. Um, and so there's the sort of personal animosity between Haman and Mordecai. And then there's this genocidal plot hanging over the Jews for much of the story. Mordecai tries to get Esther to intervene. And eventually she does. She, after all, is the queen. So she goes to the king and throws herself in front of the king and tries to save the Jews. It's a little bit convoluted how she goes about it. But in the end, at a banquet, she has this great reveal where she says, my life and the life of my entire people is in danger because of one man. And the king says, who is this man who would dare hurt my queen? And she says, it's that guy, Haman, your great advisor. Haman is pretty quickly executed. That doesn't actually solve the genocide problem. The Jews are still slated to be killed a few months later. But then, like a sort of a, to no one's surprise at that point, the Jews wind up defending themselves and actually killing anyone who tried to kill them. And that's basically where the story ends with everyone on the Jewish side of things and on the sort of good Persian side, which is the king and most of the Persians living happily ever after and Haman and his family and uh, other bad guys dead. So a good time was had by all. Well, most, right? <laughs> <laughs> Except for Haman, right? So Yeah, yeah, he didn't come off. Well, Aaron, uh, tell us that also, you know, another issue we like to think about here at the Bible for Normal People is just the setting of some of these books. And I mean, I imagine if, if there was some disagreement in debate, let us know that too. But when was the book written and under what circumstances? What, what have scholars sort of come up with there? Right. So, I mean, you know, you and your audience, they, you know scholars. So, of course, there's debate. Yeah, so scholars tend to get hung up on the question. Well, I said it was set in the Persian capital, uh, and it refers to the real Persian king Xerxes, who you know we know a lot about from the Greek side. I mean, there's, you know, he's he's a real, real person who did a lot of important things, including invading Greece. But scholars tend to get hung up on the question of whether it was actually written in what's called, from the biblical perspective, the Persian period, or a little bit later in the Hellenistic period, with the big dividing line being, is it before or after Alexander the Great comes through and conquers the entire region? Which was when? Late 330s, um, as he comes farther and farther to the east. Um, so that's, people debate about this. Uh, I'm not sure how much really depends on it. What's clear is that the author takes for granted that we really know about the Persian capital. Like he describes the palace in some architectural detail. Uh, you get a picture of this like really ostentatious 
the feasts that they're having, the banquets that they're having, the throne rooms with sort of multiple layers of security before you can get to it. Uh, so there's lots of um, lots of uh, realistic detail in there. At the same time, people have pointed out that the Greeks loved to make fun of the Persians for their ostentatiousness or over the top, the sort of veneration of the king kind of thing, whereas the Greeks were much more egalitarian and like, you know, maybe there's someone who's leading, but that might rotate. There's no one who's, you know, sort of divine right of kings and therefore mm-hmm. on big throne kind of thing. So there's, you can debate whether it's, I should say that Xerxes rules from 485 to 465 BC and Alexander is about 150 years later. So it's probably somewhere in there. That would be my guess. But if, you know, someone said, no, no, it's 30 years after that. I'm not sure that much uh, depends on it. There is a lot of realism. And the other thing is it's clearly not from the same time as the story. Uh, It sort of refers back to the king, like that great king who back then who ruled over such a large empire. So it's it's written from a later time period, but how far later is hard to say exactly, within a century or so. Of course, that doesn't mean that it refers to events that really happened. I don't know if you'll come back to that later on. but Well, yeah, I mean, let, let's get into that in a bit, because that's I think that's a really important piece for people to sort of understand the, the lay of the land, you know, of... of well, if I can, maybe to, to ask a question that maybe navigates around that question is the question, you know, we talked about when and, and maybe where it was written, but what about why it was written? And I think it's important to ask that question because I think a lot of people who grew up in certain religious traditions, that's almost a question that doesn't even dawn on them to ask because the answer, again, for me growing up in my tradition, it's like, well, because it actually happened and this is, we're recording historical data. That's why it was written down. Why wouldn't you write down history and what exactly happened? And, you know, God has preserved this uh, historical record for us um, so that we can understand God's history, that kind of thing. So, to even ask why was it written, I think, assumes some things. So, I don't know if we can ask the why question without maybe dipping our toes into the historical question, but maybe you can help us navigate that. Yeah, well, I think that's actually a great point. And I I do think that even assuming, you know, like, oh, this is exactly what happened, which we can come back to. I don't think that's actually enough to explain why something was written. I mean, the Bible itself often says like, oh, there's more stuff that happened, but I'm not going to tell you about it. It's not taken for granted that because something happened, therefore it has to be written down. We can talk about the details of Esther in a bit, because here it's particularly not clear that reading Esther will help understand God's plan for the world because God's never mentioned here. But even in a story where God is mentioned, you know, like most of the biblical narratives, I don't think the biblical authors took it for granted that because something happened, it ought to be written. I mean, we we modern people have this historical impulse. Like, you know, I'm always shocked if there isn't a biography or a shelf of biographies about some important person. Like if something happened, like there should be books about it. But that doesn't seem to be true in the Bible. I mean, they, you know, they, they're very selective in what they tell, uh, or at least what was preserved. So I, I do think that that, you know, the way you frame the question is really helpful because I think no matter what, we have to ask that question. In this case, um, yeah, maybe I should have said a little bit more about the time period, not so much about when exactly the book was written, but the setting. So the people who lived in Judah, Judea, were exiled back in 586 BCE. So by the time Xerxes comes to the throne in Susa, Jews have been exiled for a hundred years, more, a little bit more than a hundred years. They were exiled by the Babylonians. The Babylonians sort of collapsed, were taken over by the Persians. 
So now Jews live in an exile in Persia. Um, can I ask a question, Aaron? Yeah. At this point, how many Jews have returned? I mean, some many stayed. Right, exactly. Right. But some came back. The temple already was built in between uh, before the story of Esther, before Xerxes. So we have pretty specific dates and stories in various biblical books. So the temple has been standing in Jerusalem for about 30 years by the time Xerxes becomes the king. But we're told in the Bible that the community in Jerusalem, when the second temple was built, was small and poor and really struggling just to survive in a tough neighborhood without any real like functioning government or economy. Yeah. So the vast majority of Jews are still in call it exile or diaspora, but at this point, it's by choice. They've opted not to go back. There's, no one's telling them they can't go to Jerusalem or, or to Judah, but they've opted to stay. And you know, we got a picture from the Book of Esther. They've become pretty comfortable there. I mean, Mordecai has a really good Babylonian Persian name. So does Esther. Like They seem to be pretty much at home, often uh, exile and diaspora. So the Jews, I would say that the more that life became comfortable in diaspora, which it clearly did, the better life was for the Jews in pragmatic terms, right? Like their way of life is just comfortable. Like they're, they're not struggling. They're not slaves. They're not being uprooted and, and moved around all the time. So that's a good thing. But theologically, I think that itself is actually a problem for a lot of Jews at the time. Uh, that's one of the things that Esther is trying to think about because it was never supposed to be this way, right? The, like the prophets had told the, the, the uh, told Israel, well, God's going to punish you and destroy Jerusalem and then bring you back. And they're not back. And you know, you might say, like, but you could go back, but they'd say, like, no, but it's not that we're supposed to go back. God's supposed to bring us back. So they're uh, they're sitting there in exile, like trying to figure out like what does it mean to live as a Jew in exile, you know, with that um all the normal things about biblical religion. Like, you know, we don't have a temple, we don't have a king, we don't have a center of religion, like all these things that you know the Bible sort of depends on just don't exist here. And and so what is Jewish life like in, in exile? And I think I think the book of Esther is uh, in a large part meant to try to open those questions and say something about life in exile. A calling is a powerful thing. It's a very strong belief that there is something bigger for you. It's about who you are and where you're going in life. You may be in college, you may be halfway through a career, but you want something different. There's a place for you at Union Presbyterian Seminary where students are prepared for a call to ministry. At Union, you will find a diverse community. You'll find students from different denominations and professors who will listen to you and challenge you. You'll find people who help you find your own path. You'll find a school where financial realities matter. Union offers generous financial aid, and it meets you where you are with three different platforms for learning, residential, online, and hybrid. You'll find a world-class faculty who will invest in you, a community long after you graduate that supports you and equips you, for service and for leadership. Safwat Marzuk, who has been on the podcast here on The Bible for Normal People, is a faculty at Union Presbyterian Seminary and is slated to write one of our upcoming commentaries. It's no secret, if you're a listener to the podcast, how much Pete and I have relied on our seminary education and how much that has shaped our view of the world and all of our work here at The Bible for Normal People. It's your call. Respond with Union Presbyterian Seminary. To learn more, go to upsem.edu or email admissions at upsem.edu. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S.? 
They have everything you could possibly want, like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more. Whatever you're interested in, they have it for you. Find the perfect fit for your climate and space. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online, and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with that, their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee is amazing. They offer free plant consultation forever. We got our bushes in, and you can tell I don't know what I'm talking about because I just call them bushes, but we got them in last night. And Fast Growing Trees knows what they're called. Exactly. That's the whole point. It comes with this placard that tells you exactly what to do like you were in fifth grade, which is the exact instruction <laughs> level that I needed. And it was very easy to follow. We loved the process. This spring, they have their best deals online up to half off on select plants and other deals. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com, code NORMALPEOPLE. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. We've mentioned a couple times already, maybe we can talk about the historical issues in the book. And um, so, I mean, just one question toward that topic of historicity there is, I'm sensing from what you're saying, there's a realism, perhaps, to animosity on the part of Persians towards Jews, right? So we have Haman who, I mean, one can expect that to happen, perhaps. So um, is might there be something in the memory of the people that, you know, they're talking about some very difficult periods of time that they had living under Persian uh, authority? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think certainly through the lens of later readers, this seems like so natural because you know, we know at various times of pretty deep-rooted anti-Semitism in various areas of the world. So, you know, looking back at the story, like, oh, well, of course, you know, there's uh, anti-Semitism in the Persian court as well. We don't know of any, from any other sources, real animosity towards the Jews in particular on the part of the Persians. You know, the Persians, hey, look, uh, on the one hand, they're uh, militaristic, imperial power. You know, they're not nice in any like normal way. <laughs> but on the other hand, they have a real live and let live attitude towards the minorities in their midst. In some of the kings, this is like a real philosophical pluralism. Like they really respect every group that they've inherited in their empire. And we don't really know that they've singled out the Jews. Even in the book of Esther, we get the sense that there are Persians like Haman who turn on the Jews, but then there are lots of other Persians who are on the Jews' side. And actually, you know, we get this line that when Haman's decree goes out to kill all the Jews, the entire city of Susa is sort of befuddled and confused by that because, mm. you know, you get the impression that like they've been living alongside each other for a couple of generations already. And they're like, why? Why Jews? Like, what's what's wrong with Jews? So it's hard to say whether that's really re reflects something real. Of course, it's totally possible that there was some episode where something went terribly wrong and, you know, Persians absolutely turned on the Jews pretty violently, but we don't know of it from elsewhere. And it is possible that this is sort of um, a Jewish sense of, let's say, a sense that, you know, well, we are different and therefore we wonder whether everyone else hates us because we're different, even if that hatred is not really there all the time. It's hard to unpack that in the uh, in terms of- I mean, so, I mean, it's very, uh, you know, it's entirely plausible and it's probably the, the truth that this is a fictional drama, an account, well, it's really not even drama, but it's a fictional account that gives voice to a real issue, sort of like the book of Jonah, you know, is a fictional account that gives voice to some issue that is of value to a particular community. 
I assume that's right. I mean, there's levels here that we could pick apart and worry about. But besides not having evidence for the story of Esther from elsewhere, which we wouldn't necessarily expect to have, of course, Xerxes is a real person. But Herodotus, the Greek historian, is contemporary with Xerxes. He actually travels to Persia during uh, Xerxes' reign and happens to tell us about Xerxes' wife, uh, Amestris, whom he's married to when he comes to the throne and who outlives him. So, you know, the story of Esther, who in the book becomes queen halfway through uh, Xerxes' reign and then doesn't fit in. Um, Herodotus also some other details about how the Persian kings married, which doesn't work with the book of Esther. So it's, it's hard to say like, oh, it couldn't possibly have happened, but it doesn't seem to be, doesn't seem to match what we do know. And then I think, again, I think this is sort of implicit in, your, in the way you phrased the question, which was really insightful because... There's nothing about fiction that makes it inferior to nonfiction. Fiction is sometimes the best books in the world, which actually can address questions in more profound ways than something that's constrained by facts. So if the Jews are really worried by some pretty deep issues about like, what does it mean to be a Jew in the diaspora at this point? It could be that just mundane facts on the ground are not sufficient to actually think through that. Whereas a really probing fictional work can raise those issues in a, in a much more profound and searching way. It's also, I should say, like, it's not impossible. There is some story behind this where, like, there was some animosity, some episode that gave rise to the story. But I think as we have it, it's basically a work of literature. So, okay. So, while, while we're on this, let's just continue then and give us a sense of you know, historical problems in the book. And and again, not just to like say, haha, what a what a dumb book. It's historically inaccurate, but that gives us also a sense of sort of the feel of the book, the genre of the book. So what would you point to uh, to help people see the historical difficulties with the book? So the truth is, other than the story itself, the book is very realistic. I'd say mm-hmm. even more realistic than the vast majority of biblical stories. Because I mentioned this before, but it's it's really sort of central to thinking about Esther. Is that there's no there's nothing supernatural in this book. You know, you get to Daniel, who's more or less like both the book and the character are more or less contemporary with Esther, and Daniel gets you know thrown into a lion's den. But don't worry, the angels there to close the lions' mouths, or you know his friends get tossed into a fiery furnace that's raised up to seven times the heat. But like, don't worry, the angels there to like somehow magically get them cooled off in the middle of this fire. But Esther is actually entirely believable in the sense that nothing miraculous happens. The whole story is on a mortal plane. There are real characters, some of whom are sketched. It's a very short story in the end of the day, but but some of the characters are sketched. Like You really get a sense for like Haman's personality. You get a sense for some of Esther's identity conflicts in a way that I think is both very gripping and very central to the story. Like she's struggling with who does she want to be and where do her loyalties lie. And you know, these things are done in a very effective way. And the um you know it's it's not obviously fully plausible that in a battle 75,000 people die on one side and zero people die on the other side. Mm-hmm. But that is at least doesn't involve anyone, you know, stopping the sun in the sky or, you know, stars falling out of sky to fight against the enemies or anything like that. I mean, it, it is like they picked up the swords and they fought and they mm-hmm. won. So there, there's nothing in the story that sort of like boggles your imagination. And the truth is, until modern times, and I mean like relatively recent modern times, everyone took it for granted that the story was historically accurate because there's nothing in the story that makes it inherently impossible to take as accurate. It's only once we learn more about Persia and we're like, oh, wait, there's a real person. Like Xerxes is busy invading Greece. How could he be throwing 180-day parties? 
or, you know, we know his wife. So, you know, how could he be marrying this other person that we just sort of run into, into facts that make it uh, likely that the story is like sort of really good historical fiction rather than nonfiction. But the story itself doesn't sort of sit up and uh, knock you on the head and say like, come on, you can't take me seriously. Like there are other (laughs) books that, that just, you know, besides the miracles, which is obviously a matter of faith to take or not take on face value, but there, you know, there's books outside of the Hebrew Bible. So you know, books like in the Apocrypha, like Judith, which start with historical nonsense, um, like Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Assyria, and a yeah. <laughs> town called Betulia. And you're like, wait, none of this is right. Like none of these facts are lining up. So it's almost as if the book is telling you from the beginning, like, look, this is not history, right? Like we're reading something different here. There's nothing in Esther that does that to you. You know, it sets it very clearly in the third year of a real king, uh, in a real palace, in a real capital. So it's really only because we happen to know a lot about the ancient world that we assume the story is fictional. Okay, so you you've written about how the book of Esther challenges current Jewish beliefs, which is fascinating. Could you talk about what that means and so what? Who cares? Why challenge current Jewish beliefs? Yes, yeah, so this actually goes back to Jared's question from earlier because you know, the question of why is a book written, it looks very different when we read a book as biblical which of course, you know, these books reach us and they're, they're in the Bible. So it means they're bound in certain covers and they, you know, are preceded and succeeded by certain books. And you're like, well, I know how to read this book. It's a biblical book. It's speaking to me across the generations. But um, this is going to sound sort of obvious, but maybe it's worth saying anyway, the author of Esther didn't know that he was writing a biblical book. Right. Like, didn't know that there was going to be this thing that was going to be bound in like leather covers or like stuck in every hotel room that would be the Bible. And therefore didn't take it for granted that this book was just going to like sort of fit into one grand message to people thousands of years later. Um, so I think that's important to say, even though it's obvious, because it opens the door to think like, well, wait, hold on, what's on his agenda? You know, he's not just writing chapter 17 in a long multi-part series here. Um, He actually has something possibly distinctive and unique to say. And the book of Esther is so different from most of what we get uh, in the Bible that I think that has to be intentional. And this, this actually took me a long time to sort of come to think of it in this way. But Esther is, so I've mentioned a couple of times already that there's no mention of God. Um, And this is like on the one hand, a really obvious observation about the book of Esther. On the other hand, probably the most important thing to say about the book of Esther, because that's so crazy for a book in the Bible not to talk about God. So it's part of- Agreed. (laughs) Right. (laughs) I'm glad. So partly that's a question of like, how could a book that doesn't talk about God find its way into the Bible, which I think is a really important question. But it also goes back to the author, because this has to be a conscious move. I mean, it's not like today where like, oh, I don't want to say anything about God in my books because then people won't take me seriously. On the contrary, everyone takes God for granted. I mean, you can debate, you know, there's lots of theological debates in ancient Israel, but like that there was God is not a serious question in ancient Israel. So the choice to not tell the story with any mention of God has to be a like really deliberate move on the author's part. But then it's sort of like a whole bunch of observations that kept piling up that made me realize that the book is is really doing something pretty dramatic. So there's a a number of features of the description of the royal palace in Susa, which are really reminiscent, like very closely reminiscent, even in the words that are used 
of the temple in Jerusalem in other descriptions in the in the Hebrew Bible. You're like, hmm, that's interesting. You know, is this a suggestion, for example, that the temple used to be really important, but now it's not so much anymore and it's been replaced mm-hmm. in significance by the palace in Susa? That would be a pretty daring thing to say. Maybe no one would want to come out and say that, but you can sort of drop hints about it. Uh, the heroes of Mordecai and Esther are from the tribe of Benjamin, which is not the tribe that's supposed to give us the great leaders of uh, of the Jewish people anymore. Right. right? That's, of course, supposed to be from the tribe of Judah and the lineage of David, which uh, other books pick up on. You know, other books in the same time period pick up on, on Judah as significant, but this book's like, no, 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 it's actually... It's actually related to Saul. You're like Saul, hmm. huh, I haven't heard about Saul in like 600 years. <laughs> but um, okay, you know Saul's sort of like the anti-David, and like you know that's the the model of a of a hero here. There's no apology for the fact that Esther is sort of bluntly intermarried. It's like yeah, she marries a king. That's okay. Uh, so at the beginning, you're like okay, well you know it's a secret, so she had no wait, no choice. That's fine. But by the end of the story she's come clean that she's Jewish and there's no attempt to say like, okay, well now that I'm now, you know, Oh honey, your majesty. Now that you know, I'm Jewish, we're going to have to have a kosher kitchen. (laughs) It's like, there's no Jewish law in the book. There's no, no one's keeping the Sabbath. No one's praying. Like, so very not like Daniel. Exactly. Daniel's like a perfect contrast because Daniel's at the same time, basically the same place. And he's like, Oh, I have to pray at my window three times a day in the direction of Jerusalem. So Esther never prays, certainly not three times a day. There's no mention of Jerusalem. You know, we said earlier that the temple in Jerusalem is already standing, but you would never know that from the book of Esther. The book of Esther like ignores the fact that there are Jews back in Jerusalem. It's like the only place that matters in the book of Esther is Susa. That's where everything happens. That's like, that's where the fate of the Jews rests. Like, you know, are they going to live or die? Depends on like whether Haman or Esther wins the battle for the king's heart. But the fact that there's a temple in Jerusalem that's offering sacrifices, irrelevant to Jewish history, which is a crazy thing to say. And like, again, you know, it's hard to be sure that the author would say that in such bold terms. But I do think that the author is, is trying to say like, look, life in exile is not the same as, you know, the book of Samuel or stories of David and the kings and so on. Like, it's just not true that the center of the universe is Jerusalem anymore. Maybe that was true, but you know what? Right now, Jerusalem is actually part of the Persian empire. And so the important things that affect even the future of Jerusalem are actually taking place in Susa. Yeah. So I I think, you know, politically, I think um, it thinks a lot harder about diaspora, not just as as a sort of fate to bemoan, but as a reality that you need to think about. Like if you're going to be a diaspora Jew, you can't just spend your life lamenting the fact that you're not in Jerusalem. You can, but you might die (laughs) because that's not how life works here. Uh, And here you need to be like politically astute. You need to be wandering the halls of power. You need to be like, have your ear to the ground to find out who's with you, who's against you, because that's how life works in diaspora. So this is the new reality. It's not a question of whether you like it or not. It's It's just the way life works. So given that reality, you know, and you talked about the fact that the author wouldn't have recognized at the time that this is going to be in this grand message, a sort of this put next to other books and then be read in this univocal way where there's this grand message. So I would assume the fact that it has been put in this library of books we call the Bible has changed 
how it's been interpreted over the years. What are ways then that Jewish uh, interpretation or Jewish tradition history, or maybe even Christian uh, interpretation has handled Esther in a way, because I would imagine there's people who have been uncomfortable with all the things that you just said about how Esther seems to be portraying life in the diaspora. Yeah, I think that's right. It's hard to know exactly when and where it started, but I think that's exactly right. That um, already some of the early readers were like, "What kind of book is this? Like, <laughs> we can't, we can't tell this story to our kids. Like, <laughs> you know, if I tell the story of Queen Esther to my to my daughters, you know, she's going to think it's okay to marry a Gentile, and like, you know, then the Jewish people is going to fall apart and not going to survive. And you know, not to mention that you know, there's no God in Jerusalem and and so on. Uh, I think that's definitely true." So it's hard to know where it starts, but we get, one of the things that's really fascinating about Esther is that there are at least two, probably a little bit more, but but at least two really different versions of the book in the Bible. And it's going to totally depend which Bible you open. So if now it's a little bit complicated because everyone wants to be like ecumenical and pluralistic and stuff, but <laughs> which sort of messes up the neat dichotomies that we used to have in religious divisions. Um, but it used to be still true some places, but it, it used to be that if you opened a, a Catholic Bible, the book of Esther would start in a very different way than if you opened a Protestant or a Jewish Bible. Uh, and a Catholic Bible starts the book of Esther with Mordecai having a dream. And this this is totally not in the book in the Jewish and Protestant versions. It was in essentially, I mean, like, like most things that are uh, the Catholic scripture, but not in Protestant scripture. Basically, it was in Christian scripture until Luther sort of noticed that it wasn't in the in the Jewish version. It was like, well, this doesn't belong. You know, this is obviously something that the uh, that the church has put in. We have to take it out. So the version of the, of the Book of Esther that Jews and Protestants have just doesn't have a dream of Mordecai. The Catholic version has Mordecai having a dream. He says he sees two dragons who are fighting, and the fight is really severe and it threatens to overturn the entire world until a little spring comes out from the earth and becomes a river and rushes through them and, and brings peace. Uh, and that's the very beginning of the book. And again, it's still in the in the Catholic version, the very end of the book has Mordecai saying, after the whole drama with Haman and so on, he says, ah, now I understand. Haman and I, we were the two dragons. Our animosity threatened to overturn the whole world. It's not a perfect match to the story, but that's what he says. But Esther is the spring that became a river and sort of brought peace to the world. And this is a really interesting dream because, first of all, the, just the fact that he has a dream already puts this, Peter, you mentioned earlier, Daniel. So, you know, Daniel is the great dream interpreter, or maybe even going further back, Joseph is the dreamer who can also interpret dreams. So now you're like, oh, Mordecai, I get it. You're like a biblical hero, like Daniel, like Joseph, like God sends you dreams. That sort of hints at what's happening. And then you uncover like the meaning of the dream. That was your, your sort of prophetic message about uh, about what was going to happen. But that's that's the kind of Mordecai that we don't get in the Protestant Jewish version of the text at all. There's nothing prophetic about mm-hmm. Mordecai in the other version of the text. He has no insight into the world like beyond what anyone else has. He's just a regular person who's like working hard to try to stay alive and make his way through a messy reality. So. At some point, uh, there was a version of the book that was developed that included like Mordecai the Dreamer, who was more of a biblicizing hero. Uh, there's also in the same version, so in the Catholic version, there are some additional scenes in the middle of the book, one of which is actually 
people have probably seen these, like dozens of late medieval Renaissance art of Esther fainting in front of the king. And find like all of the great artists painted this scene. That scene's not in the book, in the Jewish slash Protestant version of the book. She never faints. But in the Catholic version, she does faint. That's an additional scene. And in the Catholic version, that's immediately after she has this extraordinary prayer to God, apologizing for being intermarried, protesting that she is innocent. She only does it because she has to, but really she hates being queen. She loves God. Uh, She just wants to be faithful to her Jewish community. And this sort of apology is just not there at all in the uh, Hebrew version. That's also the Protestant version. So, you know, it's always an interesting question, like, well, was it added in or was it taken out? Obviously, you know, one or the other, because we have these two versions. Um, I think in this case, it's pretty clear that it was added in. And the reason is exactly, Jared, what you said, because, you know, some readers were like, like, this book is crazy. Like, we just can't have a book like this. So at least let's have Mordecai be clearly a prophet. And at least if Esther is going to be intermarried and eating, you know, non-kosher food and drinking wine from the king's table, at least let her apologize for it. Feel a little guilty about it. Yeah, right. exactly. Right. Well, you use this term, Aaron, I mean, let's continue with this, but because it might help people listening. You have this wonderful term about the move toward biblicizing Esther. Mm. Right. And that seems to be what you're describing is an attempt to sort of bring this book in line, you know, with, let's say, core or central theological tenets in early Judaism or something like that. No, I think that's well said. I think that's, that's exactly right. That, you know, scholars, I think, I think we have a real gap here between traditional readings and a scholarly approach. And it's not that one's right, one's wrong, it's that they really are asking different kinds of questions. Uh, and when I say traditional readings, I mean, you know, going back thousands of years, like a couple of thousand years, but just thinking about the book in a different way. So if you assume that the author, as I said a few minutes ago, that the author is sort of sitting there thinking like, hmm, I'm going to write a book that's going to counter some of the things that other people have said or are saying or whatever, then that's sort of consciously taking this book as idiosyncratic. It's like, this book is not like other books. It's not going to agree with Daniel. It's even possible. I mean, I you know I don't know how seriously to say this, but like it's possible that actually the book of Daniel is what provoked the author to write Esther when he was like, oh, come on, don't pretend that you're going to live in exile, pray, ignore the king's laws, and it's all okay because if you get tossed into the lions, then an angel is going to save you. Like, that's not true. Be realistic. You know, you're going to live in exile. You're going to have to think harder about what it means to live as a Jew in exile. So that's a way of thinking about the book that very consciously takes apart the anthology that is now the Bible. It says, no, I I don't assume that the book of Esther is going to speak with the same voice as the book of Daniel or even the book of Genesis. They don't have to agree on things. And I'm going to try to let each voice speak on its own. Whereas a community of faith comes with almost the polar opposite assumption. It says, look, I got the Bible. I know the Bible's an anthology. I don't pretend that one person sat down and wrote from Genesis through Revelation or Genesis through Esther or Chronicles, you know, wherever we end the Bible. I don't think that, but I do think that some very important people in my religious uh, life have said, but these books together are what you need to live a, a faithful life. And so if I assume that, then I can't go in and say like, oh, I see here there's a debate between Esther and Daniel. I shouldn't say you can't. I think you can, but that's not typically the way we do it. It's a harder path to get there sometimes. 
Exactly. You could argue like, oh, well, isn't that interesting? The Bible is giving me options or the Bible is showing me, you know, a debate like that would be interesting. And people have said that, for example, about like, you know, the Bible starts with two creation stories, you know, Genesis 1, Genesis 2, 3. They could have been written by the same person, but the Bible starts off with two different stories as if to say, like, look, the world's a complicated place. So I don't know, maybe, <laughs> maybe say the same thing about, uh, about Esther and Daniel. You know, maybe the Bible would be trying to say, look, I, I don't know what the right answer is. You know, there's different ways of living in exile. But I think most faith communities assume that there's a single voice. And I think that's exactly right, that, that interpreters have therefore sometimes consciously, but I think mostly unconsciously, just assumed that Esther is meant to be read in light of what we know to be core to the Bible. Like if the Bible takes Jerusalem as central, takes the house of David as like the past, present, and future of Jewish leadership, then Esther can't disagree with that. If God runs history, then the book of Esther isn't free to just like disagree. And, uh, you know, in that case, the traditional reading has always been that, ah, that's the point. God sometimes, maybe especially in exile, works behind the scenes. So if you don't see God, that's a surface level problem. Well, maybe because if we're coming to the end of our time, but I'm curious if we could bring that up to modern day for two reasons. I I have two reasons for for asking this question. One is I think our audience maybe doesn't understand, and I think it'd be interesting just to expose them to the practice of Purim now and sort of what, what does that look like? But I think it continues this conversation of how do Jewish communities, how do they celebrate or talk about or enact or embody? I don't know how we want to use this uh, term where we continue this tradition through today. Do we see in general, in Jewish communities, a practicing this more religious, I don't know the right word, where we're maybe we're this biblicized, that's maybe the, the right word to carry the theme. Do we see communities today practicing more of this biblicized version of Esther, or is there still this uh, back and forth? Is there disagreement on how to do that? How would we characterize how this sits with Jewish communities today? That's a great question. I think there's probably like two and a half answers to that. So one is that if you sort of go to a uh, you know, an area in, uh, well, I'm in England now, but so I don't know what it's like here, <laughs> but in uh, New York, where I you know, spent a few decades, uh, so a Jewish neighborhood in Brooklyn or Queens, New York, um, you're going to find lots of people out on the street on the holiday of Purim, which is always one month before Passover, exactly one month before Passover. So sort of easy to figure out where in the calendar it's going to be. And the most noticeable things that you'll see is that the holiday of Purim doesn't worry so much about the politics of the book of Esther or anything of that sort. Instead, the themes that it really fixates on are the questions of identity, of everything being upside down and masked. So costumes are a big part of this. It's springtime. So there's also like a carnival kind of thing going on here, probably. The sense of like cross-dressing for hundreds of years has been a big practice on Purim. So men dressing up as women, women as men, something which is normally actually frowned upon in Jewish law. But but on Purim, it's like, no, 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 the world's backwards. Like, you know, everything's just different. And that's certainly a theme in the book of Esther. Like, is Esther Jewish? Is, she's dressed up, you know, she, she's acting as a non-Jew. She's the queen of Persia, but then she comes out as a Jew. So this sort of hidden identity, revealed identity, that's actually one of the major themes of the celebration. And related to that is actually a lot of drunkenness, which also like maybe carnival influence, but also a sense of 
the Talmud says that you have to drink enough until you can't even figure out like who was good and who was bad. Was it Mordecai who was good and Haman who was bad? The other way around, can't remember. Like everything's just mixed up. Like the world's complicated and things are not straightforward. I do think now from like a sort of outsider's perspective um, that that may be thematically related to questions of exile and diaspora where like it's not so easy to be straightforward about questions of politics and identity. Like things are tricky. Are you pretending to be one thing, but actually doing something else, a sort of trickster kind of way of life rather than a straightforward declare your identity at the door and just wear it proudly kind of thing. Like that doesn't always work so well. So, so I think a diaspora life leads itself to a sense that like sometimes things are just mixed up. It's not black and white. It's like different shades of gray, but most people, I think, you know, in the celebration, they're not thinking about the politics of, of the book of Esther, but there have been certainly modern thinkers who are like, some of the early Zionists actually argued to cancel the holiday of Purim. Like Purim is a diaspora holiday, a holiday where you celebrate someone having to compromise on their religious practice in order to just to stay alive. That's not the kind of thing we want to be doing. We will you know, fight to establish a homeland and Purim is sort of antithetical to everything that we, we believe in. So they, there's some pamphlets from uh, the early part of the 20th century just advocating for the abolishment of the holiday altogether because they did see it as a diaspora holiday. On the other hand, I think it's, you know, it's like most good literature and like most uh, religious practices, it's multivalent enough and flexible enough that I think most people just uh, see in it what they want to see in it. <laughs> so, you know, you could see it as nationalistic, see it as pluralistic, see it as xenophobic, see it as uh, embracing uh, assimilation. There's lots of different ways that people take it. It would really be fascinating. I mean, Jared, I think this is sort of a very long way of me saying that, like, I would love to have a survey of what people actually think when they celebrate it. But given all the alcohol, probably most people are not thinking that much anyway. And of course, like practices just aren't typically theorized that much. You know, it's like, oh, it's fun. Kids festival costumes, like it's all, uh, it could be fun without being too intellectualized. But, you know, these themes do get debated and, and aired from time to time and in different ways. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for coming. I feel like that brings us, I don't know, I just feel like we went on this journey through se- several centuries here. And 2,500 years, yeah. Yeah, great, great <laughs> points. I really appreciated the comments on how, what this has to do with how we think about the Bible and what it is and what we can expect from it and maybe what we shouldn't expect from it. So, thanks for, for weaving in a lot of really big questions uh, while also just educating us on something I think a lot of our listeners and for me surely has learned some new stuff. So and really inspiring people to read the book, I think, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, it yeah. is a great story and it's really it's really short. <laughs> I mean, you have to read it slowly because you know, like most biblical narratives, you know, it sort of doesn't develop things slowly in a lot of detail. So it goes by really quickly. But yeah, you savor it. It doesn't take more than an hour even reading slowly. And it, it is a great, rich story. Well, listen, thank you so much, uh, Aaron. We had a great time talking with you and elucidating Esther for us. And I appreciate you taking the time all the way from across the pond, as they say, to spend some time with us. <laughs> yeah, it was a real pleasure. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks to everyone who supports the show. If you want to support what we do, there are three ways you can do it. One, if you just want to give a little money, go to thebiblefornormalpeople.com front slash give. And if you want to support us and want a community, classes, and other great resources, go to thebiblefornormalpeople.com forward slash join. And lastly, it always goes a long way if you just wanted to rate the podcast, leave a review, and tell others about our show. 
You've just made it through another episode of the Bible for Normal People. Don't forget, you can also catch the latest episode of our other show, Faith for Normal People, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was brought to you by the Bible for Normal People podcast team. Brittany Prescott, Savannah Locke, Stephanie Spate, Natalie Wyant, Stephen Hunning, Tessa Stoltz, Haley Warren, Nick Striegel, and Jessica Schau. 